When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to another week of the Educated Home Buyer Live. This is where myself and Josh Lewis, my certified mortgage professional, my co host, if you will, on the show, answers your mortgage and real estate questions live to help you guys become the educated home buyer. So if you're new to this, every single week, we start off by updating you a little bit on what's happening in the economy, what's happening in the housing market with inventory, with demand, how, you know, things in the economy are impacting, you know, these different elements. And then we get into your your questions, right? Uh, why most of you guys come here is to have your questions answered. So as we're talking and having this conversation, you guys can help us by starting to put the questions in the chat. That way, as soon as we're done, we can just flow right into them, get you the answers that you ultimately want and need in order to help that process along. So Josh, a little bit of a, an extended intro there, but welcome back. And uh, any anything new and exciting that we should share with this week? Well, for a minute, I couldn't figure out why you sounded like you were in an aquarium, and it was because I had the music or your sounds coming out of the speakers, and I had my headphones on. So it just took a second. I'm a little slow on the uptake, but I figured it out eventually. There you go. That's good. That's a good start. So for those of you who are new um, here again, and those of you who show up every single week, you know that we have another channel outside of this. And because of you guys and the support we've received, we've hit 3000 subscribers on YouTube on that channel and over 180 something thousand downloads in just under two years on that channel as well. So um, actually less than a year on the YouTube channel two years on the podcast and a lot of activity and it's comes from you guys and we we are very appreciative of that so I want to start by saying thank you uh and also talk about the latest episode that dropped this week and that was on the idea of preparing to buy a home so if you're someone in the market preparing to buy what should you be thinking about that's what we discussed on Tuesday on the podcast on the YouTube channel go check it out this coming week uh actually today we recorded our episode on buyer commissions there's a lot changing in the world of real estate when it comes to buying a home how that affects your pocketbook so to speak as a buyer and what that's going to look like going forward it's important to know in fact it's ever changing and Josh and I are going to be continually learning and passing that information along but I really really suggest if you're buying a house anytime in the near future you go check it out it'll drop on Tuesday on both channels but Josh what we're going to do as we always do each week is start with some slides so data 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 the data, data. never lies so we always start with inventory because like Anything else, supply and demand is what drives markets. So at the moment, inventory nationwide is sitting just over 506,000 single family homes, um, up a little bit from last week, very, very small increase week over week. Really, it's, a, it's about 1%. So very, very small amount of homes came to the market. Uh, but we, we do have about 7% more inventory this year than we did last year at the same time on the market. Here in Orange County, our inventory actually went down week over week. Uh, we're sitting at 1,826 properties on the market. 
Huntington Beach 153. And so what, what does this all translate into? So inventory again, same chart, just going back a little bit further in time. Uh, back in 2019, this time of year, we had 823,000 homes on the market. That was a more normal market. Still not a normal market, more normal. And that's about, about three, 300 plus thousand more than we where we are today, which shows you we got a long way back to get to normal. And a lot of it's driven by new listings. We need new listings to come to the market in order for inventory to increase. Now, what happens a lot of times is new listings come to the market. It's met with buyer demand. Inventory doesn't increase. So we need new listings come to the market and we need less buyer demand in order for that number to grow. Is that going to happen? Hard to say, but this, this past week, 44,244 new listings on the market compared to last year, we had about 42,765. So looks like inventory is increasing at a more meaningful pace, if we can say that, a little bit higher than last year. It's still early in the season, still a lot of time left before we really dive into it. The weekly change week over week, week over week went from 505,223 to 506,414. So about 800 new homes came on the market during that period of time. Uh, last year, we actually dropped during that same period of time. We went from 473 to 472. And you guys heard me say last week or the week before, inventory last year, as we started the year, was the highest level of inventory we saw all the way up until like November, which isn't normal. Normally, inventory continues to increase throughout the year. Last year was kind of an anomaly in that sense. This year, we're increasing, but it's it's slow, slow on the uptake. Pending sales, um, pending sales are up uh, year over year compared to where we were. What five percent over last year, but still well below you know the the pace that we would like to see um, with with regards to to buyer demand. Part of that's just there's not enough homes on the market. I mean, I have buyers lined up ready to buy. There's just no property for them to buy, which is the biggest problem in most markets out there. Median home price just ticked up to four hundred and twenty thousand. The prices of new listings, uh, new listings on the market sitting at $399, and that's an uptick again week over week. Price drops. We always talk about price drops, price cuts. In a normal market, about one-third of homes have some sort of price cut. So the fact that you see a home with a price cut doesn't necessarily mean there's something crazy going on. There's always about a third of them that happens. Now, this year, we're sitting at 31.4% for this time of year. Last year, there was 34%. So we're actually a little bit less than we were last year with regards to price cuts. A lot of it has to do with the lack of supply out there, being met with buyer demand, rates dropping a little bit, getting some buyers out there moving, and us, um, you know, people getting off the fence. Same chart, going a little bit further back, just kind of showing you a line graph of, of all the years um, versus the other one. I, I like this chart better, but the other one has some stuff on it I like to show too. So, with that, Josh, we got home price appreciation year over year, um, how it, it basically varying among um, top markets out there. So what are we looking at? So American Enterprise Institute, they pulled this data together, um, really good, um, fairly neutral observers of the market. So just wanted to show here, you have two markets, basically Austin and New Orleans and Austin, a significant, you know, minus 6% year over year, New Orleans, a little bit less significant, minus 2.5 and San Antonio, fairly flat. I just saw an article this week, Jeb, that San Antonio is expected to be one of the top markets this year. But depending on where you are, affordability, supply, demand, all that fun stuff, um, we are seeing appreciation throughout the country. They pull some additional numbers together. I thought this was interesting, Jeb. 
Um, top of the chart there says historically home price appreciation, the low price tier is outpaced in the upper price tiers. So again, as everyone kind of gets pushed down, there's more competition at the lower price ranges and they see more appreciation. So the bottom of the chart there shows compared to a year ago, year over year price appreciation increased at both the high and the low ends, but it was, it was less um, at the high end, uh, just most of you guys here are entry-level buyers wanting to get your first home, get into the market. So it is to be expected, and it is what we are seeing over time that the low price tiers yep. are the most difficult ones. This but also different. on that note, Josh, I mean that low that that lower tier price point varies by state tremendously, right? Um, oh, so absolutely. You can, have a, you can have a buyer here that's entry level looking at a million dollar home, whereas you know, parts of the country are going, that's absolutely crazy. That's that, you know, the highest price home in our market. So it's all relative in that sense. But regardless of where you are, if you're buying at or below the median home price for that area, it's likely competitive. That's considered more or less the lower end of the market in a lot of these markets. And that's where you're going to find the most competition. Yep. Jeb, this one here is cool. We get the question every week. Someone steps in and asks, hey, I want to buy a house. Should I buy now or wait? This tells you that waiting is going to cost you more money. They do this by analyzing Optimal Blue data. Optimal Blue, we look at when we talk about interest rates, but they also use it to look at rate locks and rate lock pull through. So just showing volume and the loan amount and purchase prices. So there's a lot of data in that data set. The AEI analyzes it and they are projecting 5% uh, appreciation by year end 2024. And that's, would you say, Jeb, all the different numbers people are throwing out there? That's about median. Yeah, about most probably, people I mean, I, I would say it's kind of on the lower end to some extent with, with depending on who you're listening to, but you know, kind of in line with what we've said. So this one here, um, Jeb, interestingly, we, we talk a lot uh, about the numbers of construction um, permits, construction completions. What we do know is that we've seen downward pressure on uh, apartment rents and a lot of apartment rent supply coming to market this year. So I thought this was an interesting chart just to show you, depending on where you're at, it could have a big impact on rents of additional supply coming to the market and potential concessions from landlords. Other areas, not so much. So it's, a, it's an interesting one. If you're thinking of renting, comparing what rent is going to look like, we know that it's more expensive in most markets to own than it is to rent and rent should be getting more affordable. I don't know if we're going to see deflation in rents, but we're definitely seeing disinflation in rents. And on that topic here, Jeb, um, forget the exact number, but this is a, a calculated, there's, there's a tremendous amount of data that goes into this above and beyond what is in the CPI and PCE calculations, but it has over a 90% correlation. If I remember, it's like 97, 98% correlation. They are showing that we're at 1.87. Earlier this month, it was down as low as 1.84. We talk every month, the Fed wants to get to 2%. So we saw some data, much as we projected, the CPI figures for this month were not the big improvement. We saw lots of headlines, hey, inflation's sticky, it's not improving, despite the fact that we know that over the next couple months, it will be. Well, the real-time data is showing that inflation is moderating. Again, more data here supporting that. Um, indeed, job postings, negative year over year. Um, University of Michigan one-year inflation expectations. We talk about that's very important. Inflation expectations, that blue line coming down. 
core PCE inflation uh, year over year, down in that three, just over 3% range, and then trueflation, which we just showed much, uh, much lower than that. So this is global. This is not just the United States. So sequential core inflation for all countries that experience a large and unwanted inflation surge, all of them on a three-month annualized basis are right in that 2% range and month over month down closer to, to 1%. So when you're seeing these crazy headlines talking about inflation being a problem and we're going to have a hard time going the last mile and getting it to 2%, it's just not what we're seeing in the more high-frequency leading data. This is from Danielle Martino Booth over at Quill Intelligence. Um, they said, we now have corroborating evidence that timestamps October 23 is the point at which recession began. That is a bold claim, considering that it can be a year or two before the government actually says that. But they're putting that on there as 2023. And the reason why, they said uh, nine out of nine instances, anytime the unemployment rate rose in all 50 states, the economy was in a recession. In the current episode, that was crossed in October, the same month after which the level of unemployment dropped in the final 22 U.S. states. So this is the chart of showing you where we are versus the lowest levels of unemployment. All 50 states have ticked up from their lowest levels of unemployment, despite the fact that every month we're seeing these strong jobs numbers and they are strong. They're not historically weak, but they are weakening. So it's important to note that. Despite that, part of why we're seeing the strength, continued spending, real disposable income. That red line just shows you the trend prior to COVID. We had some craziness through COVID, but we're pretty much just below, but right at that trend line of where disposable income should be. Now, that's real disposable income after accounting for inflation. So for those of you saying, oh, yeah, but inflation, inflation has already been accounted for in that. Um, disinflationary demand supply imbalance. Jeff, all through COVID, we were talking about the end of it when we were seeing inflation. So you guys, too many dollars chasing too few goods. So you can see here core PCE trending down, but the Philly Fed non-manufacturing prices received. So manufacturers are getting less and trending down for everything they produce. At the same time, current new orders and inventories decreasing. They're producing less because they're not being able to sell and get the dollars that they want. And we're seeing that trend continuing. Using fewer resources, the Richmond Fed current capacity utilization and U.S. manufacturing capacity utilization, you see both of those trending down. The Richmond Fed has trended down aggressively. And I forget exactly why Danielle said, but that is more high frequency, more up-to-date data. The pink line there, but both of those have trended down. And when you see when they both dip hard, you've got a recession every time. Tax receipts here. Um, what is a recession? It's two, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. We are seeing tax receipts dive hard, negative uh, 5% year over year. Every time you look at that, that has led to lower GDP. I didn't throw the GDP now number in there, Jeb, but we see that at about one, one and a half for most of the, the expert projections. And the GDP now is up a little over 2%. I think it's 2-4. Okay, so this yeah. just shows economy is close to recession. This is real investment advice. Um, this data here, the, what they're what they're pointing out here is if you look at the green bars, that is GDP less government spending. So when you factor in the government spending, we have this high number, those high numbers that we've been reading. You back away government spending, and that number is really low, historically low. Once that goes red, you are looking at recessions there. Um, this here, you and I were talking about this earlier, Jeb, uh, we had the chart earlier this year showing that we were up at a 70 something, higher than 70% probability of a cut, the first cut at the March meeting. Um, those odds have decreased significantly. Um, I don't know, Jeb, if you saw this chart, uh, but this week it took a real weird change. So for March, we now have a 58% chance of nothing changing, of, of staying right where we're at. But then the odds for the May meeting 
goes to a 55% chance of, is that, that am I reading that right, Jeb? Is that a three-quarter point cut? Yeah, what's going on like, there? Like, that, that's crazy, right? Maybe, yeah, maybe they got that mixed up with the, uh, the, the 500 to 525. It's possible, because look at that. And then we say, going back to June, the greatest probability is a quarter Yeah, there's no way. That, that That's a misprint. So in terms of, of what we're looking at, nothing has happened unexpected over the first month of the year. We talked about it is very rare for 10 to 12 straight weeks of straight line down in interest rates. We have very low trading through the holidays between Christmas and New Year's. That trading took rates even lower this year. And so far in January, we've given it back. So we're back to kind of where we were before that holiday trading. Nothing unexpected. And we expected that there would be some of that weakness due to the inflation data not being as great uh, as many were going to hope for for January. So long way of saying there's people out there freaking out. See, rates aren't going to come down. See, it's going to be more of the same. Um, let's get through the first quarter before we make any big broad uh, purchase on this. This chart here, Jeb, just shows we now expect the Fed to slow the pace of runoff in May. So this data is from, uh, it's actually this at sober look, it's their data and it's their expectations. So again, a lot of these things, this isn't like no one has a crystal ball, but these are experts looking at the data and expecting this. So Barry Habib, uh, when we did that episode of the podcast in the fall, Jeb had mentioned that he believes that at some point this year, the Fed is at least going to back off the unwinding of their portfolio, and that will be um, less supply in the market and will be supportive of interest rates above and beyond the Fed decreasing rate. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, we've looked at this chart. It's just more of the same. We're still in this up, upwards trend. Uh, we were kind of hoping it would trade sideways. You did your analysis on this chart, Jeb. Not your analysis, your analysis. And what mm -hmm. did you figure? Four, four twenty-two, four twenty-two. I think four twenty-two is my yeah, four two two is my number. My chart looks a little bit different than this in, in some of the lines I have drawn. I have some more lines drawn and in fact we next week we'll just add my chart it's it's it it gets confusing for those that don't understand some of this stuff but i have it going to 422 so whether or not i'm right doesn't really matter to be completely honest but um i don't see us going big in either direction and if you look at that jeb that green line there 430 is probably a ceiling for us to the high side and until we get under that red line which is down about 333 um it's kind of a, a more sideways trend in terms of this. Um, interesting to see what has happened um, from June of last year. We had a spread between mortgages and treasuries of 3%. We're down to about 2.57%. So despite the fact that treasuries are up about a quarter percent over the, the time since Christmas, we've only seen about an 8% higher in interest rates. What does that equate to in interest rates? Optimal Blue saying 668. Mortgage News Daily has it higher than that at 695. I'd say you're looking somewhere in between there. FHA, depending on who you talk to, six and a quarter to six and a half. Those are pretty reasonable numbers for most well-qualified borrowers. But obviously, uh, your qualifications will dictate exactly what interest rate you're eligible for. All right. Good stuff, guys. So um, going back to the podcast real quick or to the podcast, updated the website this week. Um, the other website was a little bit cumbersome. It was hard for people to reach out if they needed to. The new website allows you to do that. Uh, TheEducatedHomeBuyer.com. Go check it out if you haven't done so. You can actually leave us a review there on the site, which is very helpful if you are not aware of that, in addition to subscribing and liking and all that good stuff that we ask here. Um, for the time and effort and energy that we put into all of this, much appreciated. One last thing on that, Josh, I know there's a banner here. So a lot of people are asking about California Dream for All. That's a program exclusively here to California that helps you with down payment. There's different guidelines and qualifications and all of this different stuff. 
It's going to more or less mirror a lot of what last year was, but it's a lottery this year. It's a little different, but it's in your best interest as a buyer. If you're interested in using this program, which every single person should apply if you qualify, uh, because free money, um, go to the educatedhomebuyer.com forward slash California dash dream dash four dash all um, and start the process to see if you're where you stand. You can talk to Josh and uh, get the process moving forward. So, Josh, we only got four questions. People don't really care to hear us. <laughs> we've already explained answers. everything to them. They yeah, we've got 83 people listening. Uh, I don't know how many people have liked and subscribed, but that would be nice if you support the work that we do here. Uh, but we're just going to dive into it. Uh, before we do that, I just want to say a big shout out to the to the regular viewers, the normals that always show up every week. That's willing. Uh, Dina is here. Uh, there was another one in there that I saw earlier. Burn it up is here, Josh. Um, I'm sure there's some others that are that are regulars as well. But those are the, the names that just stand out at me. And uh, thank you for the continued support, guys. So, uh, whoa, Dan. Whoa, Dan. Uh, our house was listed last night and we had one showing this afternoon. That's in Marietta, Marietta Georgia. So again, I only posted this because it gives you an idea. If you're in that market, might be competitive, right? What, yesterday already got a showing. That's a positive sign in most markets. Um, but just because what if what if nothing happens for a couple of days? Does that mean something's wrong? No, it doesn't. Give it some time, right? Things don't don't move in in hours uh in all markets you know like they have the last couple of years it might take a little bit of time so don't get ahead of yourself money bag says do you think home prices what? will appreciate he us? he's got money bags he is, hey, he in money the bags. lakewood california market in 2024 i think lakewood is uh lakewood's seen a lot of appreciation <laughs> i mean prior to covid i was showing you know listings in there like six hundred thousand. i mean now you know these things are pushing a million um some of them I do because it's a more affordable market than Huntington Beach, than, uh, you know, some of the areas that people are moving from uh, to get a little bit more affordable housing and still be, you know, somewhat close to to Orange County. So, you know, people migrate out there. In fact, I have several clients in the liquid market that used to live in Huntington. Um, and I think, yeah, you'll continue to see some appreciation there because it's it's more affordable. It's lower than the median home price here in California for most houses. And therefore, it's going to get some people going to it. Uh, willing shows up every week. Thanks, Willing. Uh, if you have a mortgage reporting on your personal credit report, but it's paid by a business, do you still count the full expense for that property into your DTI, Josh? Uh, so lost, this borrower has multiple businesses. So, so how does that work? Yeah, here's the fun part. You need to analyze the tax returns for all of those businesses. And if that mortgage payment, if it's paid by the business, it should be on a Schedule E for that business return. And you have to do the analysis there and it could be uh, income or a loss for the business when you're doing their income analysis, but you wouldn't then need to hit them for the payment. So they're on the hook personally, it is on their credit report personally, but you're analyzing it. And as long as it's accounted for in your cash flow analysis for that business, you don't have to hit them again. Now that doesn't mean that the borrower did it right or their tax preparer did it right. We see borrowers all the time do things that are crazy, wrong, incorrect, per IRS guidelines on their tax return. But if they did it right, you don't have to count it against them. All right. Dina is asking a question about property taxes. Do taxes always spike up after buying a home or can they rise more steadily? Asking for my brother. 
Thanks, guys. Big fan. So thanks for being here, Dina, um, even though it doesn't directly relate to you. It depends, right? In a market where you see, so California is kind of on an island by itself to some degree in how property taxes are calculated here. So we have something called Prop 13. And what Prop 13 did, it was enacted, I think, 1978. It put a limit on how high property taxes can increase year over year. That limit is set to 2%. So if home prices go up 10%, that your property taxes aren't necessarily going to go up with the value of that home. They're going to be maxed out at that 2% number. And this was done for a number of reasons, but California is one of those states that, you know, is one of the only states that does this. Uh, States like Texas and, you know, New York and some of these other states, whenever you sell a property, there typically when you sell a property, it's usually sold for more money in most markets, right? Rarely ever is a home sold for less than someone bought it for. So in that in that instance, the new buyer is paying more money for that home, and therefore it's going to be reassessed based on that new value. But what happens in all these other states is there's no limit to some degree on how much increase you know can be can how much your taxes can go up. Now there are some homesteads and some other things that do limit it in some states, but it's you know your property taxes could be affected by your neighbor selling their house for more money to the next borrower. If their property value goes up, then the tax the tax assessor says this is what values are in this market, and your property taxes go along with it. So in the in the case of the last couple of years when properties have gone up significantly. Yeah, you see big increases in 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 tax bills, but in a more normal market, I think that's getting more to your question, can it be a more steady rise? And the answer is yes, when you have slower appreciation, you typically get that more steady, you know, normal um change in in property taxes. Jeb, did you see what the lunatics in in our favorite state of Nebraska are trying to do with property taxes? I have not. Instead of prop thir- instead of prop thirteen, they are trying. This will fail, but the they are introduced a bill that would say when the county makes your property tax assessment, that is an offer to buy. So if you have a two hundred thousand dollar house and they say it's worth two fifty, and you go awesome, I accept. They would have to buy your house for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> so was where where's the state getting all this money? Magic, magic, oh, apparently, but they, but they, they, won't, they but have they the won't same, be... they have the same uh, printer that the federal government has, huh? Yes. The, the key there is they will never overassess your property because you can just say, yes, thank you. I accept. Yes, you can buy it. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Um, Jamie says, I've noticed a lot of homes coming back on the market. Any insight from either of you, home sale contingencies or loan discrepancy, approval denials, Maybe all of them. Uh, It's hard to say, right? You never know why a property goes back on the market. It could very well be something happened with the borrower. They got cold feet. Uh, You know, the loan wasn't approved. What I can tell you happens more often than anything is a buyer gets cold feet. That's where I see transactions typically fall apart. It usually doesn't happen if the financing is done correctly uh, from the get-go. If you've been to a, a professional and you've gotten a pre-approval, rarely is is the, the lending side going to be the problem. Occasionally, it can be an appraisal more or less cold feet. Um, but you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so you can guess and you can come up with these theories in your head as to what happened, but you know, it's, it's hard to say without actually speaking to somebody and getting the, the answer. And that's why I tell people sometimes, you know, people give too much credence to 
to days on market. They say, oh, this home's been listed on the market 50 days. Okay, well, what if it was on the market for a week, went into escrow for 25 days? So it was, it was, it was an you know active under contract, fell apart because the buyer said couldn't get a loan or something happened, comes back on the market. Guess what? Those 25 days, that property automatically get added to the initial um time that was was there when the property went into escrow. So now you're looking at 30 something days. So things can happen that impact days on the market that buyers aren't necessarily aware of that make them think, oh, property must be overpriced. Something must be wrong with it. No, maybe it was an escrow a couple of times. Maybe the buyer couldn't perform, whatever, something happened and and created this, you know, instance where, you know, uh, days on the market grew that the seller really had no control over to some degree. So just take that into account when looking at some of the stuff your realtor, assuming they're a professional, can kind of work into the details with you or and look into the details and, and get you more information. So Jeb, whenever I yep. see comments like that, I just want to tell them, you do not see enough data to notice a trend like that. So there could have been five and you saw them all in your neighborhood. Yeah. Noise. Absolutely. On the radar. You have not seen enough to know whether that even comes into play. The only good data I know on this, and there may be a couple of other sources, um, Optimal Blue, again, that analyzing that same data, we see pull-through rates. So um, they they measure pull-through rates. And when rates are spiking, you'll see pull-through rates drop. Um, if that home values were rapidly dropping, we would probably see the same. I haven't seen that data in a time when home values were rapidly dropping. Um, but you anecdotally watching the market are not seeing enough data to know that that is actually happening. You have just noticed it. It's that reticular activation system. I bought a red Corvette. I see every red Corvette on the yep. road. And it is what it is. Yeah. I, I see people on Instagram now calling it the red car theory oh. instead of the reticular activator, which is the, the, like, it's the red car theory. Well, th that's the dumb statement from somebody that doesn't actually know what, the, what it's called. You just make up your own thing. It's the, it's the white Tesla theory. Um, Nicole, another regular viewer on here says is contributing to a solo 401k considered a business expense, or can you add that income back in for a self-employed borrower? Here's the simple test is, is it voluntary or do I have to pay it? Your federal taxes? I have to pay my rent here for this office. I have to pay. I do not have to contribute to my 401k, whether I'm, I'm an employee, I can shut that off. So we don't count it against you. So low 401k, you go, Hey, times are tough. Business is down 10% this year. I'm going to stop my 10% contribution so that my household income and funds available for bills is the same. So just apply that test. Do I have to pay it? Is it required to operate my business or is it voluntary and something that I'm choosing to do? All right. Uh, Kevin, 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 I, um, when is the next live chat? Uh, typically they're every Wednesday, every Wednesday at 5 PM Pacific standard time. We do these for an hour. They used to be two, but we are saving ourselves a little bit of time here by doing an hour. Um, but next week we're actually going to be off. So next week I've got to travel some personal stuff. Um, give Josh the week off, if you will. Uh, and then we'll come back the following week. So in this instance, what, the 31st, 31st so we'll be on the, the 7th? Is that the first day of uh, February that we'll be on? Um, what do I look like, a calendar? The first Wednesday of February will be the next one. How's that? Vahiv? Uh, Josh, you're really good at, at, at uh, uh, that's different a, that's dialects. A tough one. Uh, yeah, yeah, but that one, I'm, I would say... Uh, Vibov, Vibov, 
by Bob Emily would be my call. And it's probably a 30% chance of being accurate. <laughs> We're going to go with that. Uh, is there a rule as per FHA guidelines that no more than 6% of the sale price could be overall credits towards closing costs? Is the realtor all considered also considered within interested parties? So what's the max contribution from a seller uh, or to, to a buyer rather um, using an FHA loan? FHA. So Vibob has all obviously already researched this and is just wanting confirmation. Yes, 6% is maximum interested party contribution. Doesn't matter if you put 3.5% down minimum, you put 33.5% down, 6% maximum interested party contribution. Interested party is exactly how it sounds. Would your realtor be an interested party? Absolutely. Would the other realtor be an interested party? Absolutely. Would the seller be? Yes. Would the builder, if you're buying new construction, anyone who has an interest in seeing that transaction close? Um, not your mom. Your mom has an interest as well. She would be just a regular old gift donor, but um, someone who is going to get paid through that transaction. All right. Uh, is selling a house to an iBuyer worth it if you are looking for a quick close? If it takes two to three months of mortgage payments and 6% commission, does that make selling to cash buyers more competitive? I would typically say no, um, and you have to understand the reasons why, right? So I buyers, while they state they don't have commissions per se, they typically charge a fees, and their fees can range between five to eight percent depending on who that borrower, I mean, who that client is. But you also have to understand when I buyers buy properties, they buy them for the reason of turning around and selling them. Most of these I buyers aren't holding on to properties, therefore they have to build a commission into it. You ever seen the show Pawn Stars, right? When they buy something and the guy says, hey, this is worth $5,000. And the guy goes, I'll give you three grand. And the guy- Eight dollars. Like, oh, yeah. What? What? It's worth five. Yeah. I got to sell it. That's how housing works with iBuyers. They are going to want to get that home for a discount. Therefore, you can typically make more money by working with a real estate agent and, you know, even if you have quick time frames, most agents, especially in competitive markets, have buyers ready to buy homes. If you have distressed property, I would say you're always better getting a real estate agent involved because I have multiple uh, investors that that would be interested in properties like this that will give you cash and do these sorts of deals. So if you're looking for somebody to lowball you a cash offer, there's people line up all day long to do that. You don't need to go to an iBuyer to do it. Um, in fact, some of those people will probably pay you more money than an iBuyer. So talk to a professional first, uh, get a couple of opinions, and then talk to an iBuyer and then compare it and see what you're actually getting net at the end of the day. That's what you have to consider, right? Net at the end of the day. But I would say selling to another buyer is typically going to make you more money than selling to some company and or an investor. So it could be and worth the, the time frame. The bigger thing, Jeb, is you throw it in the MLS or you even just talk to a realtor that has two buyers. You have two people that know there's someone else they're bidding against. If you just call up one iBuyer, they're just going to come out and say, cool, here's the number we can do. You don't have anything to compare it to play each other off of. You could call two or three or four iBuyers, but I don't know how many there are left, Jeb. Aren't most of them? I, the I, I've never seen a competitive offer from any of these guys. And, and I've had close. clients call me to to that ended up being clients call me and say hey i want to list my home i get there we start having the conversation like hey i got this offer from an iBuyer and i look at them like you'd be like you'd be crazy to take that i'll give you that like 
I will pay you what they're willing to pay you. And we don't even have to do anything. That's how bad it is. So keep that in mind. And and I realize that sounds self-serving, but I promise you, it, you will net more money by going another direction. All uh, right. Um, you know, MR, no guidance on Seattle per se. Um, Seattle is one of those markets that I know went gangbusters. Uh, inventory was low. Prices have been high. My understanding is Seattle is still a competitive market. I don't, outside of that, I don't know anything. I have, I don't follow it um, religiously. Uh, Josh, if you can, maybe if while you're sitting there, if you can pull up um, calculated risk, he did his December uh, report today and he shows active inventory year over year, new listings year over year. And I was quite surprised, um, to be honest, with some of these markets seeing the change in inventory year over year and i mean some of these it increased a hundred percent year over year where other markets are down a hundred percent i mean it's it's crazy but i think seattle's one of the markets he follows it is here let's see i went and said that it, it, i don't have it um it goes san, san diego santa clara sometimes he there, does Orion a couple of different ones sometimes he shows different markets so um maybe next week come back and ask the same question we'll see if we can get you an answer mickey uh is looking into a usda loan well good news mickey i just recorded a video <laughs> on a usda loan it's not out yet a couple weeks probably but a first time bu uh, buyer due to cancer treatment last year took most of my savings sorry to hear about that by the way uh do i even have a chance making seventy thousand dollars a year and growing with a company yes you have a, a chance um me being an outsider looking in josh will be able to answer this question more directly from a lending standpoint but if, if you were out because of a medical thing that was affecting your ability to work i'm pretty sure if you've got a history of of employment you're you might be okay josh am i accurate or no it's a zero down program and it does not require reserves so from that standpoint you don't even need money so if there was an absence from work always uh, if it's documentable that we had a health issue and we have re-established our employment you're good from that perspective so it, i don't they're almost red herrings you've kind of distracted yourself it really just comes down to uh do i meet the credit requirements does the debt to income ratio line up and is seventy thousand dollars enough to qualify for the homes in my area and is the home in, in an eligible rural area per usda yeah and on top of that there are some income limits that you can't make more than depending on uh the gross median income or area median income i think it's 115 percent. so i would think with seventy thousand, you would probably be okay for most people but it is combined family income uh up to four people so it you know if you got four people in there and they all make money um and live in the property you got to calculate all of that in order to and you got to stay below it but conversation for another day. Uh, talk to a lender if you need one uh, or and or a real estate agent anywhere in the country, guys. There's a link scrolling the bottom of the screen. Go to it. Check it out um, and, and and have a conversation with a professional. It doesn't cost you anything. We'll save you time and save you money. Josh, let's go with Mina's question here because it's a good question. Do you have to pay federal taxes on the sell of your primary home if you are moving into a new home? So, if you have a home, Josh, that you bought for five hundred thousand, it's now worth one million dollars. You gained five hundred thousand dollars in it. Are there any taxes that have to be paid on that? Am I married or am I single? In this case, you're single. So I'm single. So I have a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar exclusion. So the easy math, if you want to say it went up five hundred thousand dollars, I have a two hundred fifty thousand exclusion. I would pay taxes on the two fifty. 
but let's throw a wild card in there. I let's see. As a, yeah, let's say you as, did a hundred thousand dollars in repairs that are documented, and you. I, I uh, went way better than that. I'm oh, a bachelor, Jeb. Okay. I went full blown. I turned the whole place into a man cave. I spent three hundred thousand dollars <laughs> in improvements to my property to get it dialed in to make it worth a million dollars to the next bachelor. So I only have two hundred thousand dollars of profit, even though it's not what I sold that property for the million. And even if I had done nothing there, Jeb, the expenses for selling the property can come off of that. Um, other things. So it really is the, the the net differential. It comes down to cost basis. You can look that up online. You want to talk to your tax preparer, but it is important that you know what your cost basis. Even if you sell it for a million dollars, your net is going to be less than that. And even if you bought it for 500, if I bought it for 500, my cost base is going to be higher, whether I did the 300,000 of upgrades or $30,000 of upgrades. There are things that can add to that basis and decrease that tax bill. Yeah. But mean, if, if I remember your story, I think even if you are saying, I don't know if you're single or married, but I, I think your your purchase was more recent, probably don't have 250,000 in gains. Maybe it's 100, 150, and, 200. And, and key here is you have to live in that property two of the last five years as your primary home. So if you've only lived in it six months and you've gained some equity and you go to sell it, there's a partial exclusion for the time that you've been there but there might be some taxes that you have to pay. Uh, but going back to Josh's example, you get that $250,000 exemption as a single person. You got $300,000 in improvements that you did. So you're at $550,000 in, you know, potential exclusions, if you will. So there's, there would be no uh, taxes that would need to be paid on that. Um, again, talk to a CPA, right? These are rough examples. We're just kind of throwing some numbers out there. But in the case, Josh, that you were married, how would that change? 500,000. So no matter what, in that instance, if I bought it for five, I'm selling it for a million. If I didn't increase my basis, if I didn't have any selling expenses, I still, if my wife and I have had that as our primary residence for two out of the last five, my $500,000 exclusion would cover all of the gains from the property. Look at that. Us educating you guys out there in the market. We're making educated home buyers, Jeb. Hey man, but here's the thing. How can they repay us, Josh? How can someone watching right now that's benefiting repay you and I without Mina monetary just, Mina, payment? Mina just, just gave us $10 to 805s. Where? Dude, the cost of everything is outrageous, bro. Outrage. I sound like an old, like, just grumpy. Well, I, I mean, old and grumpy is probably accurate. But, dude, the cost of everything is just outrageous. Like a sushi roll. Like, I remember when you used to go eat sushi, like most sushi rolls were like 10 bucks. Like a, a, an extravagant, like crazy roll was like 14, 15 bucks. Now, every roll is like $17 and some of them are like $22, $23. And I'm like, what? And now my kids yeah. eat sushi? Bro. I have, I have one word for you. Yeah, you don't eat anything. Like you eat hamburgers. Bougie, this you are our audience. You feed your children sushi. Our audience doesn't want to listen to your first world problems. Hey, listen, maybe we catch it, Josh. Maybe we catch the sushi we eat and I charge them for it. I'm charging them money, showing them real life examples. Uh, Mina, thank you for the $10 super chat. It is appreciated. Um, let's see here. So we still got that banner up, Josh. How do we get rid of that banner? Um, let's so okay. All right. Where are we going here? Um, Derek is asking about low inventory. He says, I keep hearing about low inventory due to the lock-in effect. What is your take? 
I I believe that part of the inventory problem is due to people locked into low rates. Now, I know there are economists out there that don't believe that. Um, they believe that, you know, it has nothing to do with where rates are. The reality is when home prices are higher and somebody's locked into a super low rate, the cost to move, that transition cost is a problem for a lot of people to, to mentally uh, hurdle over. On top of it being affordability. Affordability is a problem, so that is part of it. Um, but I think as rates come lower, some of these people are willing to entertain the idea of doing that. Therefore, you'll see some more inventory. But I believe, yes, lock-in effect is a real thing. Josh? Well, Logan will tell you it's not lock-in effect. It's affordability, which is a fancy way of saying lock-in effect. People don't feel as though they can or should afford that change. If you have a seven hundred thousand dollar house, you bought a house for four fifty. It's run up to seven hundred. You owe three fifty at three percent, and to get the home you want to go to would be go to a million. So my three fifty loan becomes six fifty. My interest rate goes from three to six and a half seven percent. Pretty obvious that a lot of people either cannot because they cannot qualify or will not accept a doubling of their payment. I talk to a lot of people that just go, whew, I did not know. I was unaware that's how much more my payment would be, and I am not doing it. So we are seeing, Jeb, part of that reason why we have more inventory here at the start of this year, more people who said, I'll wait it out and expected rates to be lower sooner, that affordability to come back have just said, hey, we've outgrown our house or this commute is driving me out of my mind. So despite the fact that I would like to wait, I cannot. So it will normalize over time. Um, and if rates come down, the more they come down, the more it will. But absolutely, that affordability leads to, to that lock-in, no matter what you would like to call it. Um, Jeb, we have a really critical and important question that I have not got answered myself. Oh, How did your sleep experiment go? Were you were you diagnosed with sleep? So I don't know yet. I don't know. Uh, in fact, it's funny that you say that because I emailed him uh, this afternoon and asked. It took my wife when she did it because she also took it before I did. Um, it took her a couple of weeks to get the results. Uh, and so I thought that was kind of odd that it took so long to get the results, but it is what it is. And so today it's been about three weeks since I sent it back. So I was like, dude, where, where are we at? So maybe by the next episode, if we're not by the next episode, then there's a problem, but I'll let you know, as I know. Equally important follow-up question. Willing comes back with, will the lions roar against the Niners and will the Ravens be untouchable regardless? You know, the Ravens look, can we do a poll in StreamYard, Jeb? Can we throw a poll up? I don't think you can. I got to actually do it in YouTube itself, um, which I'd have to open another browser and our it would probably lag our internet we would pause you know because you know we're working on uh, uh 1g over here internet we're still on dial up um the ravens look really good uh defense looks amazing um you know selfishly I, i'm not a 49ers fan per se but I'm, I'm a mccaffrey fan so i i i like the 49ers for that reason and so i'm pulling for the niners over the over detroit I don't know. I mean, there's four solid teams in the in the in the playoffs. I feel like, which I don't feel like this is normal. But Kansas City still looks really good too. So I don't know. So who are you rooting for? Who when you? I'm, I'm rooting for the 49ers. I, I'm a, I'm going 49ers. I'm uh, that's who wrong, I'm. Wrong for. answer. Wrong answer. That is the wrong answer. And who are you going for? 
Uh, Wesley, I'm rooting for the Clippers. That's the right answer. I'm rooting for the Clippers. Well, here's the deal. Uh, the Clippers have about as good a shot at winning the title as the Panthers do at this point. Um, so equally, um, this is, this is Jeb without saying, I don't watch basketball. This is Jeb saying, I don't watch basketball. Clippers are garbage. Absolute garbage. Confirming that he doesn't watch basketball. All right. We can get back back to housing and real estate. Probably trying to recruit Blake Griffin again. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Um, Let's see. Let's see. Uh, Landon. Landon. Your son is is a veteran? Yeah. 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 How can you use a VA loan to purchase another house? Uh, Current home is a current loan is tied up by a current home. I'm planning to maybe rent the house out in the future after buying another house as a primary one. So can you reestablish your entitlement, Josh, while owning another property with a VA loan? Multiple options, depending on who you're talking to. uh, The first option is either called secondary entitlement or bonus entitlement. So there's a calculation. If you didn't use all of your entitlement, so if you bought a $2 million property with zero down, you've used up all of your entitlement. If you buy the $200,000 property, you have not used up all of your entitlement. The truth is probably somewhere in between. You may not be able to do a zero down, but you can do less than you can with other loan programs. And whether it's 3%, 7%, 10%, whatever that calculation comes out to be, using the VA is going to get you a lower interest rate. You're going to have no mortgage insurance. The only downside there could possibly be is if you don't have a service-related disability or a Purple Heart or something else that makes you exempt from the funding fee, the funding fee might push you towards a conventional loan. So you want to get with a lender very familiar and experienced with VA loans and is going to walk you through that. Uh, The other option, which is much less attractive because rates are higher than what most people have, would be a one-time restoration. You can refinance that loan to a conventional loan away from VA, restore your entitlement one time, one time, and one time only ever, not just on that property, on any property. Uh, So if you do that, you can restore your entitlement and do zero down no matter what you want or what you want in terms of a a new purchase. So the most important thing is most loan officers, their eyes would glaze over and have no idea what you're talking about. So make sure if you reach out, if you talk to someone, connect with someone that is experienced with VA loans and understands the bonus entitlement calculation because it's a little bit goofy. It's easy, but it's a little bit goofy. All right. Um, you know, to a, to a really, I mean, just let's go money bags coming back with a strong comment. I deal with sleeping issues. I wake up gasping for air at night, heart racing. Terrible. I have to also take a test. That should be a priority, my friend. Like, I don't have any of those issues. I wake up well rested. I The only reason I'm getting one is because my wife told me I need to get one. I feel good. Dude, those are problems. Go get tested. Like, don't have don't have regrets, man. Man, woman, I don't know. Money bags could be either, but take take your health serious. You'll uh, y- you know, you can't change some things, but you can uh, you can work to fix them. So um, do your best. How's that? All right, uh, Josh. There was another question here. So here's the g- deal, guys. We got a lot of specific questions on cities tonight. We got one on Dallas. We got one on Minnesota. The reality is, Josh and I shouldn't give you any guidance on any specific market outside of Southern California because we're, we're not in those markets. Um, there's enough channels out there to figure out what's going on, but I'd recommend talking to a professional in those markets to figure out where things are. You know, that's the best course of action. If you need a referral to a real estate agent, to a mortgage professional, the link below will get you to someone, uh, but don't use us as, as that 
you know, because we're, we're too far from it. Real estate's local. It's important to talk to people in those markets. So Josh, um, got a comment from PNR Property Solutions. Pedro is saying, what's up? He's in St. Petersburg. I'm assuming he's a property manager, home inspector, appraiser, something to do with properties, but he's saying what's up. So we're giving him a shout out. Okay. Josh, uh, there was another one here and it seems to have gone away. I don't know where, I don't see it now. But Javo, J-V-O, Javo, 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 Bell Biv Javo, would like your opinion. It seems to me that current prices in California's Central Coast, the only way an investment property might even cash flow would be adding an ADU. Thoughts on this? So, uh, probably accurate. Um, I the Central Coast, Central California, probably not a problem. Central Coast, more of a problem. So, when it comes to investing in property. You really have to look at it one way, one of two ways. You have to look at it as a cash flow type property um, and or an appreciation type property, unless you have the money to put down in order to make it a cash flow property in some of these states. Now, California is very expensive. Most properties do not cash flow without a large down payment, unless you do it as a short term rental. In some cases, maybe adding an ADU and helping out. Even then, it's tough to say. I don't know that market well enough. And each property is going to be a little bit different because what kind of rents are is it going to bring in? You know, how much is it going to cost you to build the ADU? What, what down payment do you have? There's so many things that go into it, so many variables that each, you know, situation is a little bit different. But you, when you're thinking investing in California and or another state, you got to think, I mean, where does your money go in California? What do you get? What does it go in other states? What do you get? What are the pros and cons? of each of those, right? Being driving distance to a property versus it being out of state, having someone else manage it. All of those things you need to think about and way too much to dive into in a single question. So we're going to push I, that I would off. Say, I would say this, Jeb, let's remind everyone that two, three weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago, we did an episode on the podcast on ADUs, went through this in detail. Um, ADUs are not a magic bullet. They cost money. They cost more than what most people account for, time, effort, energy. Um, so when you look at that, most people overestimate what they will rent for, underestimate what they cost to build. So it will will it help cash flow? Most likely, but do your research, do your details, um, it, do your due diligence. If you're looking to invest for cash flow, I wouldn't think in terms of the central coast of California. Yeah, agreed. There you go. All right, um, let's go to Billy Cruz. Thanks, guys, for the show. FICO is 690. What's the difference between that and a 700 on rates? And also, what range of rates am I looking at for both scores with 5% down? So too much there. Again, does, it depends on the type of loan you're doing. depends on the type of property you're buying. depends on too many factors. But Josh, simple question is, 690 to a 700, is there a difference? 5% down, he's talking about a conventional loan there. So the difference at uh, 95 for 680 to 699 versus 700 to 719 is a quarter percent. So not a quarter percent interest rate, a quarter percent in fee. In a normal market, that it usually equates to about an eighth of a percent in interest. It could be as much as a quarter percent in the current market, but an eighth to a quarter higher because you don't have that score up over 700. And in terms of rates you're looking at, go back uh, and look at the slides at the beginning. It's somewhere 
most people are looking somewhere in the 675, 6.875 range right now. So you have some add-ons here, 95 uh, with with that, we're looking at a one and three eighths ad, assuming that you're buying a single family residence. So you're probably looking in the low sevens uh, at that 7%, seven and an eighth. But there's just like Jeb said, there's 40 different factors that go into that. So to get an accurate, honest quote from someone that could actually lock and deliver that rate to you, reach out to a lender. You can use the link down below. If you're in one of our states, I can get you those numbers. Uh, otherwise we can get you connected with one of our friends that we know, like, and trust. All right, good, good. Um... You know, I saw a question and now it's gone, Josh, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was some erroneous comment about home prices moving down and home prices have not moved down. It was a statement about interest rates going, If inter basically it was along the lines, if interest rates, oh, here we go. If rates keep on playing like they're going up and stay up, prices are going to fall. So let's remind people that last year when interest rates spiked, at eight percent, home prices stabilized. Um, in fact, we increased. had less, huh? Yeah, increased. prices continued to go up, but even then, we saw price cuts actually go down, right? So, the number of homes going on the market or, or price cutting goes down, interest rates go up, stabilization of market. Why? Inventory, there's a lack of it until you have more supply than you have buyers willing to buy properties in a meaningful way. Prices aren't going anywhere. So if interest rates were to go back to 7% from 675 or whatever, prices aren't immediately going to drop. It takes time for all of this stuff to play in, guys. Um, and the reality is rates, if they do go up, are going to come back down. So the 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 short term of interest rates, say next six months, interest rates are going to move down. Simple. It, it, they, they have to based on where inflation is going and everything happening in the economy. All right, Jeb, every time Chris comments, I know he's commented before because I see that boat and I want his boat. It's a nice Yamaha jet boat. I would like that. So, if, Chris, if your boat turns up missing, check the security cams. I might have been lurking. Maybe you need to sell that boat, Chris, to buy a house. Josh might be a buyer. <laughs> he Josh may already a have a house. He might. He, he might, might already have a house. But what if he doesn't and he wants to sell his boat? Are you a buyer? We could, we could swap. I'll, I'll give him a free loan and he lets me use the boat a couple weekends. Use the boat. Even even better, Chris, yeah. you get to keep your boat and loan it out. Is Josh the kind of guy that would wash your boat after using it, or does he return it like he, he just came out of the water? All, all they need to know is my wife, and they will know they will get that boat back better than they've ever had. <laughs> it'll, get, it'll come back better than it was. <laughs> how much does a collection account affect uh, how much home you can afford, Josh? It doesn't really impact how much, it could impact how much home you can afford, but it doesn't really. Most situations, a reasonable collection, a $50 collection, an $800 collection, a $2,500 collection, the automated underwriting system is going to see it and ignore it if it is okay with the rest of the credit. So let's say you still have a 710 credit score and that collection, if it goes away, you'd have a 745. That's not going to prevent you from getting a loan. It's not going to make you qualify for any less. Um, if it's taking your score from 710 down to 645, 
it can absolutely come into play, but it's not exactly that collection. It's the collection's impact on the credit score and how the automated underwriting system is seeing everything. So if you have perfect credit otherwise, and you have a small collection, not a big deal. So depending on the type of collection, you probably want to reach out to the collection agency, see if they will do a pay for deletion boom, it's gone, disappears. We have a, a viewer to the show uh, reached out through the link below um, looking to help him buy a property with his VA benefit in the state of Washington. And he had good credit, but he had two decent sized medical collections. He called the collection agency like, yep, you pay us, we will make those disappear. So always worth uh, reaching out and pursuing that. If they won't do the pay for deletion, see if possibly they will settle it, but talk to your loan officer to see if that is necessary. You don't want to pay off a collection. Even if you have a $10,000 collection, they say, pay us today, we'll take 50 bucks for it. Make sure you talk to your loan officer first, because although that's a fantastic discount, if by paying that off, it makes the date of last activity come forward, it could actually hurt your score paying it off. Good stuff. So what I love, Josh, is sitting on here providing information for a couple of hours and, um, People buying homes and and and, and mailing. Huh, what's that? Fifty eight minutes. Fifty eight minutes. Sorry, fifty eight minutes. Um, and people commenting on how it benefited them. Uh, but what I love more is when people show up that have been here a couple times over the years and been consistently wrong about everything that they think is going to happen in the housing market, and then have have the decency <laughs> to ridicule me for being accurate. And thinking that you're a moron because you're wrong. The reality is you're a moron. It's really, really simple. If if you consistently show up time and time again and are wrong about the same information, then you're not learning your lesson. It's like a child that continues to repeat the same thing over and over again. And they continue to get punished. Or the dog that continues to pee on the floor. And you're like, dog, what are you doing? You got to pee outside. Same thing. You got to learn. The data doesn't lie. And right now, the data says home prices are going up. They're going up, Josh. Anyway. Chris followed up with, with far more important information. It's a Yamaha AR-195. Just sold my home and waiting for the new build. Chris, where's the go. new build at? And when, when are we scheduled to close? Maybe, maybe he doesn't have a place the in the new build to park his boat, Josh. So he needs to sell it to me. I like that idea. I mean, this is, I, this is where I see things going. Let's make a I deal. See. Let's make a deal. There was a show, I think, right? Something along those lines. Uh, anyway, guys, we've been on an hour. We appreciate you guys showing up every single week, uh, helping me hit 97,000 subscribers on YouTube, helping the Educated Home Buyer podcast hit 3,000 subscribers, and all the positive comments that you guys continually reach out to every single week. It's the reason that we do what we do uh, because it's, you know, we find value in helping others. Uh, you know, benefit from, from home ownership and we see the value in it. So if you need to contact Josh and or a lender anywhere in the United States, that referral link below will get you to someone. If you need to get in touch with me and or, a, you know, a realtor in another state, that same link will work as well. Um, but Josh, uh, I'll throw it your way for, for parting words tonight. These guys all wait um, till the 11th hour and then throw good questions. So the parting words are come earlier in the hour and ask these questions. These are good questions. We definitely want to, to get a number of these answered. But big picture, just uh, appreciate you guys being here. Um, continues to be uh, an interesting and difficult market for first-time buyers to enter into. And we appreciate you being here and, uh, and asking good questions so that we can help all of you hopefully cross that threshold into becoming homeowners sooner rather than later. All right, guys, until next time, adios. 
Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.